0: Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. This teaching was recorded live during our weekend service in St. Charles, Illinois. We invite you to join us in person any weekend in St. Charles, DeKalb, Aurora, or Streamwood. Learn more at ccclife.org. And now, enjoy the message. So here's a riddle for you. What do the following eight people have in common? Okay, I'm gonna put their faces up here on the screen. So what do these guys have in common? You got Roger Bannister, top left, first guy to break the four-minute mile. Okay, Burt Reynolds, one time a Hollywood superstar. Barbara Bush, Barbara was the wife of one president, mother of another president. Uh, You got Stephen Hawking, a renowned physicist and uh, a renowned atheist as well. Lower left, Paul Allen, co-founder of Microsoft along with Bill Gates. Uh, Aretha Franklin, Queen of Soul, Willie McCovey, uh, one of my baseball heroes, Hall of Fame, first baseman for the San Francisco Giants, and John McCain, one time Vietnam POW, then Arizona Senator. Can you see the, uh, you know, what they have in common? Just look, right? It's obvious. Yeah? Okay, here's what it is. Uh, one year ago, on January 1st, 2018, those people were very much alive. But by January 1st, 2019, this year, they had all died. So they're no longer with us. In fact, we speak of them in the past tense. And in fact, there's only one being in the entire universe that is always in the present tense. We're not in the present tense. Always one day they'll speak of us in the past tense. There's only one person in the universe who always is. Who is that person? God, right. That's God. God. God was speaking to Moses one day 3,000 years ago out of a burning bush, and Moses asked, well, who are you? And God answered Moses, Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, by identifying himself as I am. I am. So what is that name, I am? What does it tell us about God? Theologians say that I am distinguishes God as the only non-contingent being in the universe. You say, great, what what does that mean? God is the only uh, being in the universe who's not dependent upon some some other force for his existence. He's not contingent upon anything else. He's the only non-contingent being in the universe. We're all contingent. We depend upon God for our existence. We depend upon the great I am. But God is non-contingent. He's the source of everything else. So Why am I driving this truth home about God? Because it will help us to understand a conversation that took place between Jesus and a crowd that's recorded in John chapter eight. So Jesus is speaking to this crowd one day and he's uh, teaching them about their ancient ancestor, Abraham. And he makes it sound as if he knew Abraham personally. And so one of the guys in the crowd Because Abraham lived 2,000 years before. One of the guys in the crowd calls out. He says, wait a second, Jesus, you're not even 50 years old? And you're making it sound as if you hung out with Abraham? Jesus responds in John 8, 58. He says, very truly, I tell you, before Abraham was born, I am. Before Abraham was born, I am. And the crowd was stunned because Jesus was not only claiming to be really, really old, he was claiming to be the non-contingent, eternally existent source of everything God, the great I am. Now, we're, we're beginning a, a seven-part series today that's going to conclude on Easter weekend, and the series is called The Great I Am. Now, Jesus' amazing claims, we might say outrageous claims, about himself. Uh, hopefully, this series will prepare us for Holy Week. So Holy Week's coming, Good Friday, Easter, and we want to be prepared in a meaningful, faith-enriched, Christ-centered way. Now, the reason the series is seven weeks long is because we're going to study each of the seven I Am statements that Jesus makes in the Gospel of John. If you brought a Bible with you, Okay, would you turn with me to John chapter 6? That's our text for today. Uh, Jesus not only repeatedly uses this title, I am, to speak of himself, he gives the title further definition by adding something each time he says it. So he says, I am the bread of life, or I am the bread The light of the world or i am the good shepherd seven different i am's in john's gospel today we're considering i am the bread of life if you got your bible open to john chapter 6 it's verse 35 in case you don't have a bible we're going to put it up here on the screen and i want you to read it out loud with me here we go then jesus declared i am the bread of life whoever comes to me will never go hungry and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, God, for your word. So what is, this, what is this title, Bread of Life, what does it tell us about Jesus? Three truths we're going to see today. If you haven't taken the outline from your program, I encourage you to take it out, fill it in as we go along, or download our mobile app, and you, know, you could even take notes on your electronic device, and you'll, you'll see the outline there as well. Three truths about Jesus. When he says, I am the bread of life, what's he saying? First, he's saying, I am soul-satisfying nourishment. Soul-satisfying nourishment. Now, if your Bible is open to John chapter 6... We just read verse 35, but I want you to look back to the beginning of the chapter because there's a heading over verse 1, and it gives us the context for Jesus' statement, I am the bread of life. So what happened just before Jesus made this statement? What big miracle took place? Call it out if you see it. Yeah, he fed the 5,000. So he took a little boy's lunch, if you know the story. was a great multitude of people. They were hungry. He multiplied this little boy's lunch, two small fish, probably the size of sardines, and five dinner rolls, bread, okay? And he broke it and broke it and broke it, and it fed 5,000 ravenously hungry men in addition to women and children. So thousands of people with this multiplied bread. Bread is the topic of the miracle. In fact, the word bread, if you read the story, the word bread pops up five times, bread, 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 bread. So Jesus multiplies bread, more bread than you'll ever see at a Panera, okay? Lots and lots of of bread. And then he gets done with the miracle, the people are fed, and he departs. And the next day, they go looking for Jesus. The crowd goes looking, and they find him in a little town called Capernaum. I've been there a number of times. That village is still around. You could go visit it. It's right around the the corner of the north side of the Sea of Galilee, this freshwater lake from where the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 had taken place. And this is where we pick up the story, verse 25 of John chapter 6. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, you're looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and you had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man, speaking of himself, will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Jesus refers back to the miracle he'd done the day before, the multiplication of the bread, and he calls it a sign. You see that word in the middle of verse 26, if you got your Bible, that's why you bring your own Bible, you get to mark it up, okay? Circle the word signs there, another really important word in the Gospel of John. He talks about seven signs, describes seven major miracles that Jesus did, just like there are seven IM statements, there are seven big signs, big miracles in John's Gospel. Now, why does he call them signs? Well, what does a sign do? Okay, a sign points the way to something else, right? A sign doesn't point to itself. A sign doesn't draw attraction to itself, it points to something else. Okay, so if you're driving down to Orlando, Florida, and you see a big billboard that says, Disney World, 20 miles, okay, that billboard is not Disney World. You know that, right? I mean, you don't stop your car, pile the family out, go hug a pile on the billboard. We're here, kids they're going to be sadly disappointed. Okay, the sign is pointing to the the major attraction. Jesus' multiplication of bread was not about the bread. The bread was a sign. What was the major attraction? What did the bread point to? Call it out. Jesus. You thought it was going to be a trick question, right? No, the bread pointed to Jesus. Jesus was the main attraction. Now, unfortunately, don't miss this unfortunately, the crowd was more interested in bread for the sake of bread, which is is why Jesus kind of scolds them in verse 26. He says, you know, the only reason you're looking for me is because you ate the loaves and you had your fill. Now, it wasn't that Jesus had anything against people getting a decent meal, In fact, if you go back and you read the story of the miracle, it was Jesus who first noted that the people looked pretty hungry, and he said to his disciples, guys, we got to get the crowd something to eat. So Jesus is not against the notion of providing people with with a good meal, but he knew that these people had an even bigger need. They had a need for spiritual food. They had an inherent hunger for God, and that's true of every one of us here today. It's true to all of you who are listening online or at one of our other campuses. God has has designed you for an intimate relationship with himself, and you crave that relationship whether you realize it or not. And and, and so nothing short of God is going to satisfy your hunger. Nothing short of God is ever going to fill you up. Bread won't fill you up. Not, Not even that freshly baked loaf that they bring out at a fancy restaurant and they serve up with with olive oil that you could dip it in and carve Parmesan cheese and you know it, it still won't satisfy your soul hunger and neither will sex or your job N- neither will a different girlfriend or a Caribbean cruise or a low golf score or a new baby or 30% off at Kohl's or a starting position on the soccer team nothing Now, you know what what Jesus calls all that stuff that we're constantly looking to for soul nourishment? Go to verse 27 again. He says, do not work for food that spoils. Food that spoils, it's here today, it's gone tomorrow. In other words, all that other stuff that we're constantly trying to feed ourselves, it doesn't provide lasting satisfaction. Oh, tastes good, tastes good going down but it doesn't relieve our deepest hunger. In fact, it just masks our soul hunger for God. And that's not good to have your real hunger masked, to not recognize that you got a soul hunger that needs to be satisfied. You know, th- this past week was Ash Wednesday. It's a big date on the Christian calendar. It introduces the the season of Lent. Lent leads up, several weeks leads up to Holy Week, Good Friday and Easter. And one of the practices that Christ followers have engaged in over the centuries during the weeks of Lent is called fasting. Fasting means to voluntarily give something up for a period of time. Okay, voluntarily give something up for a period of time. Often it's food. Of some sort. Now, why would Christ followers do that? Well, a couple of reasons, major reason. Well, one reason is it makes time for prayer. You know, most Christ followers I know will tell me, uh, I wish I prayed more and just don't have the time. And, and so what we found it helpful to do occasionally is to skip a meal or a day of meals during Lent or any time of the year in order to spend that time in prayer. I do that on a regular basis throughout the year, skip one lunch a week that gives me time I wouldn't otherwise have, and I like to take a prayer walk, go outside somewhere, preferably along the river, and just talk to God, You know, confess sins, intercede for my family members, thank God for as many blessings in, in my life. Fasting allows me time to pray, but there's something else. There's something else that fasting does for Christ followers. It helps curb our appetite for things in our lives that we're pigging out on. It helps curb our appetite for the things in our lives that we're pigging out on. The Things that are distracting us from a hunger for God. Food that spoils. Now, Now sometimes that's literally food. Okay, we're just so wrapped around the axle of food, you know, over snacking on junk food and overeating out at our favorite restaurant, got to do it multiple times a a week or just just overeating in in general. So when we fast, when we cut back from a kind of food or a meal or a, a day of meals, what we're saying is, Lord, my pursuit of food sometimes edges out my pursuit of you. And I don't want that to happen. So so I'm fasting this meal and I'm asking you, please get this food thing under control so that I can hunger more for what will ultimately satisfy my soul, so that I'll hunger more for you. You get it? Good. Now, Now, some Christ followers practice fasting not just from food, but from other things that are over the top in their lives things that are eclipsing things that are outpacing their hunger for God. You say like what? Well, what is over the top in your life? Okay, maybe it's watching sports. Did you watch hours and hours of sports every week and yet ironically you say, you know, I just never seem to have time to read the Bible or to pray or to I don't have the time to get involved in a community group at Christ Community Church. I don't have time to serve in some area of ministry. My schedule's full, and yet you're watching hours and hours of sports every week. And so maybe fasting would involve cutting back sports watching hours to make time for your soul hunger to be fed. Some of you are saying, I can't believe you're recommending this just as March Madness is around the corner. (laughs) It's because I want there to be more god madness in your life. And you want it too. You want more. This is where the real exhilaration, where the real excitement comes, when you're connecting with God. And it may, may mean cutting back on something else that allows you the time to do that and the focus to do it. Maybe for you, the over-the-top activity is shopping. You're a shop till you drop person. Maybe it's video gaming. Maybe it's working out. Maybe it's home decorating or playing tennis or watching Netflix or engaging with your cell phone. In what area of your life, I answer this, in what area of your life could you benefit from some fasting? I mean, imagine doing a day without your cell phone. Kind of gives you the shivers just thinking about it, doesn't it? You remember the last time you thought you lost your cell phone? panic mode, right? I've been there. So, oh, no, my phone's gone, right? So, so what would it look like to fast from your cell phone? Well, it, it might look like not bringing it to the dinner table with you, saying, okay, we, we, it, this doesn't come to any meal table where I'm engaged with other people, or maybe it means in the morning when you get up, you refuse to check your cell phone until you've checked some pages of God's Word. You do a little reading here before you read what's you know, come through by way of text or emails. Or maybe, maybe you do a cold turkey, phoneless evening. You shut your phone off at 7 p.m. and you don't wake it up to 7 a.m., how about that? See, Jesus, the bread of life, wants us to hunger for him because he knows that everything else we're over-consuming, cell phones or, or whatever, is food that spoils. It leaves us feeling empty. I mean, how, how often does using your cell phone provide you with soul-satisfying nourishment? This food that spoils friends. It's like taking a big bite, a big chomp on cotton candy. Remember your first ever cotton candy as a kid? You got this, it looked like it big as a bushel basket of uh, pink, fluffy stuff, yeah. Some amusement park, sugar on a stick, and you took a big bite, and what did you discover about cotton candy? It's gone. Nothing. Nothing. You bite down on it and it dissolves. There's like one ounce of sugar in every big bundle of cotton candy. I googled it for you, so you wouldn't be looking it up when it. <laughs> Food that spoils. That's the way it is. The stuff that we clamor after, but it doesn't give us a sustained buzz. That vacation trip that we planned for months in advance, and we did it, and now it's in the rearview mirror, and it's like, oh, it's already forgotten. You know, the, the blockbuster movie that we look forward to, we watched the previews and we waited for it to come out, and it was, yeah, it was okay. You know, that dream date that we were going to go on was going to change our lives, a Cubs opening day, new pair of jeans, promotion at work, nothing wrong with any of that stuff as long as we realize it's food that spoils and won't nourish our soul. L- listen, friends, we were made for soul food. And our hunger will never be satisfied with food that spoils. And so my challenge to you is consider cutting back, even using this Lent season, to cut back on something you're you're overdoing so you've got more room for the bread of life, more room for Jesus in your life, more room for soul-satisfying nourishment. Number two, what does it mean when Jesus says, I am the bread of life? It means that Jesus is life-giving, nourishment life-giving nourishment drop down to verse 31 of uh, John 6 a little bit of background here uh, Jesus has done this miracle and now he's explaining it and whatever and Jewish historians tell us that the Jews of the 1st century uh, they were looking for a coming messiah they were looking for a promised savior And they believed that this savior would authenticate himself by sort of replicating Moses' miracle 1400 years earlier of providing manna in the wilderness. So the the savior would arrive on the scene and he would do something like what Moses did. Now you remember that manna story? 1400 BC, Moses delivers God's people from 400 years of slavery in Egypt, marches them toward the promised land. They get sidetracked along the way. I mean, majorly sidetracked, like 40 years sidetracked in the wilderness. And during that time, the only thing that's keeping them alive is that God sustains them with manna from heaven. It's a bread-like substance that they find on the ground in the morning. So, So Jesus' audience is thinking to themselves, well, you know, the Messiah is supposed to come and do a miracle kind of like that. Well, Jesus just multiplied a little boy's lunch yesterday, this bread he multiplied. Is this the Moses-like dude we're supposed to be hoping for? Now, you know, the minute they brought that up in their minds, they thought, well, now, when you compare the two events, I mean, Moses' manna was so much better. For starters, okay, Moses provided manna, for 40 years, every day, 40 years in the wilderness, Jesus, it was like a one shot lunch. Okay? Moses' manna fed an entire nation, 2 million people. Jesus' manna fed 5,000 guys plus women and children. Hey, pretty impressive, but not 2 million. Okay? Moses' manna, it fell from heaven and landed on the ground. Jesus' bread, it got passed around and dirty old baskets. I mean, they weren't even long a burger baskets. Yeah. Moses manna, it was called the food of angels. Jesus manna, it's a little boy's lunch. So they're thinking to themselves, you know, Jesus, okay, if you're trying to prove that you're the the Messiah here, you're gonna have to impress us a little more. Okay, it's not quite up to speed with what Moses did. So what was Jesus' response? Well, for starters, look at verse 32. He points out that the manna from Moses, it wasn't from Moses. It was actually from God. It was manna from from God. And in the same way, Jesus says in verse 32, God is now sending you, middle of verse 32, true bread. He's referring to himself. He said, just like manna came from God, I'm from God for you. So how is he better than the previous manna? Look at verse 33. He calls this true bread the bread of God. So he's kind of poking a stick at him. He's saying, okay, so Moses' bread was the bread of angels? Got that beat. I'm the bread of God. I'm the bread. Now he was using a technical term, term that his Jewish audience would have understood. The bread of God referred to 12 freshly baked loaves that were brought into the inner sanctum of the temple every day and laid out on a solid gold table just outside the most holy place. 12 loaves, one for each tribe of Israel, and they represented, they symbolized the presence of God. In fact, sometimes the bread was referred to as the bread of the presence. So who is Jesus claiming to be? He's claiming to be the very presence of God Almighty among us. So to have Jesus in our lives is not just to have a a man a happy meal for the day. It's to have God with us. Jesus continues describing this true bread. Look at verse 33. He concludes by declaring that the true bread, the bread of God, gives life to the world. That little phrase, gives life to the world, contains two wonderful thoughts. First, gives life. Gives life. It's a verb in the original Greek text in the present tense. Now, quick grammar lesson here. Okay, in the original Greek language that this gospel of John is is written in, a present tense verb signifies continuous ongoing action. So when he says this true bread gives life, he's saying it gives life day after day after day after day, ongoing life, eternal life, eternal life. You know, it's it's not like Moses' bread. It sustained you for that particular day, but that that was it. It didn't sustain you. The manna didn't sustain you for next week or next month or next year, but the true bread sustains your life forever. It's life-giving bread. And then the, the last part of that phrase is equally important. The true bread gives life to who? Call it out. Say it again. It gives life to the world. Moses' manna. Fed a group of Israelites in Old Testament times. Jesus, the true bread, gives life to the world. In other words, whoever you are, wherever you live, the offer is yours. You want eternal life. It's to be found in Jesus. You got Jesus? Jesus offers himself to you. Now let me share a little uh, family news with you at this point. Uh, My dad was part of the original group that launched Christ Community Church several decades ago, and he has been active in the church ever since. Well, he had a visit with the oncologist this past week, the cancer doctor. Uh, Dad had had a bout with cancer five years ago, and it went into remission. The doctor at the time said it is kind of a tenacious, aggressive form of cancer. it will probably be back in 12 to 18 months. That was five years ago. So we thank God for this uh, period of time we've enjoyed, but it's now back, and it's back with a vengeance. So he had a biopsy about 10 days ago, and then uh, day before yesterday, we crowded into the doctor's office to hear the report, and it wasn't good. And when I I say we crowded in, I've got three siblings, and we were all there either uh, physically present or electronically present to hear the news, On a human level, it was quite discouraging. We're looking at options now, what's next, but the prospect of losing dad deeply saddens us. But at the same time, we have great hope. Now, certainly not from a medical point of view, but from a long-term eternal perspective. Because you see, dad's got Jesus. He's got the true bread. He's got life-giving nourishment that we know is gonna sustain him for eternity. In fact, let me just say, I, I don't know how people face death, either personally or the death of a loved one, who don't have this assurance. You know, do, do you have this assurance? Do, do you know that you have eternal life? And if you say, well, yeah, I think so, what is your assurance based on? Is it based on some whimsical hope you kind of hope that you have eternal life? Or is it based on the confidence that you've got Jesus and Jesus is your life-giving bread? Do you have Jesus? Are you certain you've got Jesus? How does a person eat this bread? Strange question. But but the bread of life won't do you any good if you don't know how to ingest it. If you don't know how to take it in, the bread of life's not going to do you any good. So here's our third truth about Jesus, the bread of life. It is faith-ingested nourishment. It is faith-ingested nourishment. I want to go back to John 6 one last time, and I want to read you a passage that has confused readers for centuries including the original audience. Okay, so we're going to pick it up at verse 48. Jesus repeats his claim, I am the bread of life, verse 48, verse 49, your ancestors ate manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. By the way, if you've got your own Bible, circle the word eat every time it pops up. You're going to see it a number of times here. Verse 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. And then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. So it's obvious, in fact, if you looked at the fuller context, I only read you a portion of the closing passage of John 6. If we read the entire portion, the word eat or feed, feed on me, Jesus says, appears seven times. So it's obvious what the theme of the close of of the speech is. It's about eating Jesus' flesh. What's not so obvious is what in the world does this mean? Well, a lot of Christ followers over the years, they read John 6 and they assume that Jesus is referring to the celebration of communion or what uh, some church traditions call the Eucharist. So around Christ's community church, we celebrate communion once a month in our weekend services. We pass out little uh, pieces of bread and little cups of juice that represent, symbolize the body and the blood of, of Christ. Why do we do this? Well, we're commemorating what commemorating what Jesus did for us on the cross. See, our sins had separated us from a holy God. And the bad part about going our way instead of God's way and disconnecting from God is when you disconnect from the one who's the giver of life, guess what? You die. Okay, you experience spiritual death on the inside that leads to physical death and eventually eternal death. So God sent his son Jesus to take the death we deserve to die. That's what Jesus was doing on the cross. That's what we commemorate when we take communion. So is Jesus describing communion in John chapter six? Is eating Jesus' flesh what we symbolically do when we eat that little piece of bread and sip that that, that juice? No. No, no, for one thing, communion is a is a reenactment of the Last Supper when Jesus passed around bread and and wine as symbols of his body and blood, just hours before he went to the cross and he died. But but this passage, this speech in John 6 that we're looking at today, it took place over a year before the Last Supper. So it's it's highly unlikely that Jesus is doing a tutorial on how to celebrate the Last Supper, how to celebrate communion a year before the the event takes place. And, And not only that, whenever communion is described in the Bible, it's always pictured as a celebration for believers, but in John chapter 6, Jesus is not addressing believers. He's talking to a crowd of mostly spiritual seekers. They're not committed Christ followers. So, so why would Jesus be explaining communion to this group of non-believers? Okay, if, if eating Jesus' flesh in John 6 then is not about celebrating communion, what, what is it about? Well, Jesus actually gives us the meaning of eating his flesh, several times in John 6. This this expression is a synonym, listen, it's a synonym for taking Jesus into our lives by faith. Taking Jesus into our lives by faith, believing in Jesus with all our heart. If your Bible's open, go back to verse 34, the original I am statement. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life, whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever, what, say it, believes in me will never be thirsty. Drop down a a few verses to verse 40. For the Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life. Go down to verse 47. Very truly, I tell you, verse 47. Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. So how do we get the new life? that Jesus offers, the the new life that when you get this new life, it extends into eternity. We believe in him. Now, that sounds simple. That sounds straightforward. So why doesn't Jesus just stick to saying it that way? Why doesn't he say, believe in me and stop with that? Why does he bother saying it in in a different way in the same passage? Why does he say repeatedly, you got to eat my flesh? I mean, doesn't Jesus know that some people are going to be turned off by that metaphor? I mean, it sounds, kind of sounds gruesome, doesn't it? In fact, if you keep reading the story, you know what you discover? Jesus gets to the, the end of the speech, and most of the crowd concludes, this is weird. Like, we're out of here. And they leave, they walk away from Jesus. So, like, maybe Jesus needed a better speechwriter, Right? Get rid of that gruesome talk about eating your flesh and so on. Two reasons I think Jesus uses the metaphor eat my flesh instead of just sticking with believe in me and leaving it at that. Let me close with these two reasons. First reason, by saying eat my flesh, Jesus is is communicating to us I want you to ingest me fully into your life. Okay, in the same way you eat food and you take it in and you digest it, I want you, you taking me in. It's, it's a much deeper, more profound way than saying believe in me. See, in our culture today, believe in me has become so watered down. What does it mean to believe in Jesus? Well, you know, I believe God sent him to earth. He did some miracles, taught some wonderful moral truths, died on the cross, rose again. I believe it. The Bible says that even Satan believes in Jesus in that way. See, it's just a head trip. It's nothing more at that point. It's agreeing with certain facts about Jesus. Jesus is saying, no, I mean so much. When I say believe in me, I'm saying so much more. I'm saying I want you to take me into your life fully. Surrender yourself completely to me. I want to be the savior. I want to be the king of your life. So let me ask you today, have you ever ingested Jesus in that way? If you're here and you're saying, oh well, yeah, I believe in Jesus. Is, is that like a one-and-done deal for you? Oh, yeah, you, you believed like five years ago or 15 years ago or 30 years ago. Or have you truly taken Jesus in, fully taken him into your life? The second reason I think Jesus uses this phrase, eat my flesh, is be, because he wants us to know that he expects us to savor him like delicious food. Okay, I think of my favorite all-you-can-eat smorgasbord at this point. There is always something new on it. Okay, there's something new to be learned about Jesus, some new discovery to be made in relationship with him. If you've got a bona fide relationship with Christ, this will be your experience. You will find that you feast on Jesus. Is that true of you? Or are you still clinging to the, well, I believe in him. And again, it's, it does nothing for you. It's kind of cold. Do you feast on Jesus? I want to invite you right now across our four campuses, those of you who are watching this service online, I want you to bow your heads together with me. Would you pray with me? We're going to sing a closing song about feasting on Jesus in just a moment, but I want to give you an opportunity to to totally ingest Jesus if you never have before. If it's been nothing but a head trip, you've believed some things, some facts about Jesus, but you've never taken him fully into your life, I want, want to give you the opportunity to do that right now. And you do it with what we call a surrender prayer around Christ's community. Surrender means I'm giving him everything and I'm taking everything of him into my life. And there are three basic words that make up the surrender prayer. So as we're bowed before God, let me give you those three words and invite you to pray them back to God and expand on them in your, the quietness of your own heart. The first word is sorry. See, there's got to be some recognition that you've been going God's way instead of your way. The Bible calls that sin. That every day you do things God says don't do and you don't do things God says that you ought to do. And that disconnection from God has brought spiritual death to your life. Can you say, sorry, God, I am sorry that I've been going my way instead of your way and that I'm spiritually dead? Here's a second word I'll give you. And again, you just frame it up in the quietness of your own heart. You say sorry in the way you want to say it to God. The second word is thanks. Do you understand today that when Jesus died on the cross, he died to take the death you deserve to die? Have you ever told him, thank you for that? Have you ever said, I want you to be my savior? I know you did this for the world, but I know we gotta personalize it, so I wanna personalize it. I wanna say thank you for dying for me. Can you say that? And here's a third word, the word is please. Please, I want you in my life. You know, I want to move beyond this believing the right facts. I want to move to that place where you are fully ingested. You are filling every nook and cranny of my life. I'm learning what it means to live for you. I'm hungering for you. I'm feasting for you, more of you in my life. I want to learn more about what it means to follow you. Can you say, please come into my life? Pray that right now. Please come into my life. I'm going to ask you to do one more thing before I say amen to this prayer and we're still bowed before Almighty God. If you just prayed this prayer, this surrender prayer, and you meant it from your heart, because it's a spiritual feeding on Jesus, you can't see it. Tomorrow you may wake up and wonder, what did I do at church yesterday? Did I really do that? So I wanna ask you to do something physical that will help you remember the spiritual decision you just made to take Jesus into your life. If you just prayed that prayer to take Jesus in, I want you to stick your hand in the air for one second and put it back down in your lap. Just a way of saying, "Yep, yep, okay, I see that hands, hand's going up. Up in the balcony, St. Charles, just put your hand up and right back down. In DeKalb, just put a hand in the air, Streamwood, Aurora, put a hand up. Yeah, I want Jesus in my life fully In my life. Yep. Put the hand up, put it back down. Anybody else? Give you one more second. Just put it up and put it down. Jesus, we know there's nothing magical about putting a hand in the air, but we pray that it would be a sign of the sincerity of our hearts that we we don't want just little niblets of you in our lives. We want you fully. We want to learn what it means for you to be our savior, our best friend, our king. We pray in your name.